Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Well, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so let's get there. Last time that we were together, we learned that there was another controversy brewing in uh, the church in Corinth. They've had a lot of problems, if you haven't picked up on that. Um, not, not wholly unlike us, right? Issues that we face are similar to the issues that they faced in their time. Um, now, this problem was fairly unique, namely that the people were beginning to believe that there was no resurrection no resurrection of the believer. That there was no hope that their bodies would rise in the newness of life. That was the thing that they were struggling with. Heresy had crept into the church and, and they were very likely under the impression that the resurrection of the dead had already happened and that all future believers would live eternally but as disembodied uh, souls. That was the, the heresy that had crept in. At least that was the one that was popular at the time. We're not given all the details, but the people were struggling with this. And it was beginning to affect their faith. So Paul begins his argument by reminding them of the evidence of Christ's resurrection. And as we discussed last time, the resurrection of Christ was easily proven and verified in the, in the first century world. I mean... It's almost as though you could, you could probably throw a rock and hit someone who, who had either seen Christ raised from the dead or knew someone who'd seen Christ raised from the dead. There was enough evidence, provable evidence, that Jesus had actually died and risen again. And to be honest with you, if you understand church history or you understand history in general, in fact, it wasn't until the Enlightenment or, or that those early years of modernism, that people began to circulate the secular theories surrounding the resurrection, that it was a hoax, right? That was a common belief that rose up in the 16th and 17th century. Prior to that, it was basically believed by almost anyone in the Western world for sure that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. It was a fact. Now, after all, uh, one of the evidences is that without a resurrection, what motivation would the 12 disciples have to hazard their lives if it was just a lie? Who gives their life for a lie? People don't do that. In fact, in the decades following Christ's death, hundreds of believers with first and second hand accounts of the resurrection were martyred. Hundreds upon hundreds, thousands in the years following. Look, People don't give their lives for what they know to be a myth. They don't do that. Right? So these men that walked with Jesus Christ, that saw him killed, would soon afterwards give their lives for what they knew was a resurrected Savior. They, that's, they did that. Now, if he hadn't risen from the dead, what motivation could they possibly have to give their whole life to a cause that had absolutely no consequence whatsoever? People don't do that. In fact, the reason why people join cults 
is because they're deceived into believing that they're going to get something out of it, right? They're, they're deceived because of lies and because some cult leader who hasn't risen from the dead, mind you, um, is convinced them of some sort of glory that could not possibly exist. They're deluded. But these are men who very reasonably knew Jesus, walked with him, saw him in his flaws, and each of them said that they saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Right? Now, it wasn't just their testimony. There was many testimonies in the first century. The resurrection of Jesus was in, uh, is essentially an incontrovertible fact even among Jewish and Roman rulers of the time. Flavius Justus lived from A.D. 37 to 100 and was a Jewish military leader turned Roman historian and record keeper under Emperor Vespasian. Vespasian was the primary ruler shortly after Nero. There was a few kind of, there was a few coups in between. But at the end of the day, Vespasian was the next major leader in the empire. And Flavius Josephus worked for him. And his historical record of Jesus says the following. Okay, should be up there. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of, this is a Jew, by the way. This is not someone who's put their faith in Christ. He's speaking these things as historical fact, okay? But one that he clearly can't decipher or make complete sense of, but these are claims that he felt very safe recording for posterity's sake. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. So Jesus' resurrection was a factual enigma of the time. So rather than diminishing those facts, what was Satan's strategy against the gospel? In other words, if the fact of Christ's resurrection could not be attacked, if it was that substantiated, then what was Satan's strategy for undermining the gospel? Well, Satan's plan was to spread false teaching. And that false teaching had to cut people off from the power of the resurrection. If, he couldn't, if they couldn't deny that the resurrection took place, then he needed to cut them off from its power to diminish the faith and strength that, produce, that is produced in people's life when they put their faith in it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. So what does this passage say? It tells us 
that our power that we have as believers is the same power that rose Christ, rose Christ from the dead. It's the same power. It's the same power to us word. That's what we've been given. And so Satan's objective is to cut us off from resurrection power. He wants to cut us off from the power that gives life over death. It's the very power that's been extended to us is intended to be severed and cut away so that our lives would be meaningless, trivial. Satan doesn't mind if we call ourselves Christian. You know that, right? There's no power in calling yourself a Christian. Many people do it. Many people go to church every Sunday. There's no power in that. The power is living in the knowledge that the resurrection is ours, that it belongs to us, that even if someone killed us in our flesh, that would not be the end of our lives. That we are eternal beings, forever loved, unconditionally. That we, that we are indwelled by the power of his spirit. And that he's given us a task to do. That's where the power is. But how many of us can honestly say that we are living in that power? How many of us are convinced that we have victory over our circumstances? How many of us have victory over dark thoughts and evil emotions that, that entrap us and, and debilitate us? How many of us have meaning? I mean, I think if we are honest that many of us are struggling to tap into the power that we claim. And so here's our question for today. How is the resurrection actively changing my life? I mean, I know for many of us, we've, we've put our faith in the cross and the resurrection. We believed on the gospel. We've accepted Christ as our Savior. And in that way, the resurrection has changed your life. But you know God's not done there, right? That he wants to actively work the resurrection power out in your life every single day. And so this is a very relevant question. How many of us who call ourselves Christians can honestly and truthfully say that the resurrection is impacting my life every single day and empowering me that I might have victory over the circumstances of my life? I think a lot of us struggle with it. We're going to tackle that today when we look at the testimony of Paul and his salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time and thank you for these people. Um, it's, it, you know, it's funny. I, this, I, don't, I can't love anyone in the world outside of my own family more than I love the people in this room. And yet every time I step into the pulpit, I have a moment where I'm... I get bashful and shy, like I for, almost like I've forgotten everything you taught me this week. And it's hard to get the words out. My flesh opposes me. And so, God, even right now, I ask for resurrection power. I, I ask that you would speak through me, that, that my weakness wouldn't be on display, that your strength would be on display, that your name would 
reign in this room and in the lives of these people today because of your word, because of what it says and how it inspires us and motivates us to love you more, to to love you more earnestly and to devote our works and our actions and our mind, our thoughts to you in, in every moment. So Lord, please move in us now. Use your word to empower us. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Today's sermon is called The Capacity for Great Things. We're going to begin reading. The context here is that Paul is providing the church in Corinth with evidence of those firsthand accounts of people who saw Jesus after his resurrection. Verse 3 says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, who we know as Peter, Then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, uh, present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me, as of one born out of due time. Now now here he's going to go into his personal testimony, and how his testimony is evidence of Christ's resurrection. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was within me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believed." What do we know about Paul? What do we know about Paul, previously Saul of Tarsus? What do we know about him? Okay, briefly, what we know is that he grew up with religious and governmental ambition, right? He was a man who was after influence. He wanted to be, he wanted to be influential, and he was on that path. He was trained under Gamaliel, the greatest rabbinical instructor of the day, He was young, he was zealous, and he was a spiritual leader in Jerusalem. We know that about him. We just got done. Well, not, we didn't just get done. But not too long ago, we just studied Acts, and we we read his testimony. We learned about who he was and and how his life was changed. But Saul of Tarsus, that, that young man, had everything going for him in the world. Everything going. And yet he was completely unaware that his life was way off track, that he was misguided, and that he was every bit as wicked as he was spiritual. He had no idea. Before uh, Before Paul knew Jesus Christ, he was responsible for imprisoning, beating, and facilitating the murder of Christians everywhere that he went. That was his job. And it's because of this past, this blemish on his record, that he presents himself as the least qualified and most unlikely among all the apostles. Verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle. Why? What's he say? Because I persecuted the church of God. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be called an apostle. Now, as we know, Paul was on his way to issue warrants of arrest for Christians in Damascus. 
when Jesus stopped him with a blinding light. You guys remember this story, Acts 9, 4? And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the, pr the pricks. And so Jesus announces his presence to Saul while he's traveling to Damascus. There's a blinding light that overcomes him. He hears this voice. And in Acts chapter 26, Paul recounts the story and tells of how Christ put a calling on his life. Verse 16 says, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen and those things in the which I will appear unto thee. In this moment, a man completely undeserving of anything other than God's judgment was given a new life, a life of power and purpose. And we know that he was made an apostle. Romans 11, 3, uh, 13 tells us that. 2 Timothy 1, 11, 1 Corinthians 9, 1. He was made to be an apostle. And he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. But it was in that moment when he encountered the resurrected Christ face to face that he discovered the power of resurrection. He, he, he came face to face with a resurrected Jesus. And now his life was forever changed. And, and so Paul is unafraid to say that he, was very, he, he may very well be the least of the apostles. He was unafraid to say that. Now, we know that the apostles were those spiritually elite followers of Jesus, right? The 12 disciples plus, plus others were set aside to be the apostles of the early church. They were trained among Christ or with Christ, and they were elite in their gifting. They were the pastors of pastors in the early church. Now, Paul seems comfortable acknowledging that among all these men, he's the least worthy to carry the title. All right, now listen to me. You guys, I, I, I acknowledge the fact that in the spring months, the early spring months are the hardest to pay attention during sermons. Always have been. I'm old enough. I've watched it happen every, every year around this time. When your allergies set in, your eyes are already a little swollen. They're half shut already, right? Because the pollen. It's nice out. School's out. You guys stayed up till one or two in the morning last night. I already know it, okay? But I'm done with my setup, okay? So now you have to pay attention because I'm going to talk at you. I'm going to look you in the eyes. This is the part where I start looking you in the eyes, Okay? Paul says, look, I was the least of the apostles. I get that. Because I, I persecuted the church. I, I, never, I, I never earned any of this. I was the least likely to be selected. I was the least likely to have God's grace on my life. I, I, I feel like the odd man out. Now, I think like Paul, we often find ourselves in this exact same place not wholly removed from, from the reality of our past, right? I mean, there's some of you in the room today who think about your past often. 
And the, and the sins of your past have a tendency to haunt you a little bit. And many of us, we take it a step further and we begin to, to carry the sentiment that I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I'm not good enough. For example, many people in this room, they, they came to Christ out of various forms of emotional difficulty, upheaval, struggles. There's many of you in this room who have a history of struggling with anxiety and depression. And perhaps even still to this day, from time to time, you let the shadow of those feelings consume you. And in those moments, you say to yourself, I'm the least. I don't even know how to be a Christian. I feel on the outside looking in. Maybe you've had an addiction of some sort. Right? Maybe in times past you struggled with, with various forms of addiction. There are many, right? And, and you got victory over that through salvation. And yet, sometimes, from time to time, you struggle with the temptation to go back to those old sins. Right? You let your guard down for a minute. And then the temptation comes knocking on your door. Some of you have past that you can't seem to shake. Some of you have immaturities that, that still pop their head up from time to time. You put your foot in your mouth. You act stupid, right? You do things that are dumb. You make bad decisions. And the tendency in us is to say, you know what? I don't even, I don't even deserve this. I don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve his resurrection. I don't deserve to be a part of this church family. And so you isolate, you hide, you shame yourself. You put yourself down in Bible study. You make yourself seem stupid or undeserving. Listen, we may feel like the, the, the least worthy Christian on earth. We may look around and compare ourselves to other Christians and say, I am the worst among God's children. But there's good news for you. And that good news is our first key point, and that's this. The resurrection qualifies the most unlikely candidate for great things. Amen. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that qualifies you. Not anything that you've done or any favor that you've earned with God or the people in this room not because you've impressed me or any other spiritual leader in your life. Not because you, you did something to get the attention of someone else. It's the resurrection itself that qualifies even the most unlikely candidate for great things. And God has great things for you. But so many of us are so obsessed with our past, so obsessed with our struggles that we cannot even set our eyes on the resurrection. We have no idea that we are conquerors and victors. We have no idea or we can't tap into the fact that we are overcomers. We don't see it. We've been, we've been blinded again. And it makes it almost impossible to see. 
that God has power that he wants to give us, that he wants us to tap into, that we might do great things for his namesake. Ephesians 3, 7 says, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. That's Paul speaking. He's, he, listen, notice that he says, more than I'm just the, the least of the apostles, he says, I am less than all the saints who have ever lived. He is now qualifying himself as the worst Christian, the most undeserving of anyone who's ever lived. And he says, yet, he says, it's the effectual working of his power in my life. It is the grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's the least among God's children that because of grace can say, I'm the mightiest in his army. Christ's resurrection is a declaration over the weaknesses of the flesh. He made dead things live. And he makes weak people strong. So what we need to learn is to not wallow in our struggles or in our insufficiency, but instead concede that we are weak. Concede the fact that we are weak so that we might be able to embrace true humility. See, that's humble yet strong. Lowly but bold. Broken yet useful. That's what it means to tap into the power. is to acknowledge that you are just a dead, a dead, lifeless, worthless, undeserving individual who Christ bestowed grace upon. And he's made you capable. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Look, you know, as your pastor, I do, I do a lot of counseling. This is just a ministry of weak people, right? This is just a room full of people who from time to time, they need some counseling. Like, like, there are, there are, there's a contingent of newer people in here that I don't know yet, but if you're around long enough, there's going to come a point where you come to me and say, hey, can we talk? And you know, you know why? Because all of us are weak. And there are times in my life that I have to, that I have to sit down and talk with someone because I need someone to remind me of who Christ made me to be. I have to be reminded too. 
But we can't stay there. We can't live there. And so many of us have lost the sense of power that Christ has given to us because we've lost sight of his resurrection. And it's in his power that we're made strong. It's in his resurrection power that we are made strong. But what is it about faith in the resurrection that actually makes weak people strong? What is it about Jesus raising from the dead that makes us overcomers? And I want to say this. It's one word, grace. Grace. Verse 10 says, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm I'm the least among the apostles. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So let's remind ourselves what grace is real quick. Grace is the unmerited love and favor of God. That's what grace is. Grace, Grace is the unmerited love and favor of God. It was given to you not because you deserved it, but because he loved you first. He loved you first. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ just happens to be the greatest act of love that God could ever give. John 15, 13 says this. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus Christ did for you. Jesus led by example, and he gave his own life that you might know that he's the greatest friend that you'll ever have. That his grace is for you. And this leads us to the next key point. That's this. The resurrection. The resurrection is the difference between a divine friend and a distant divine. A distant God. The resurrection is the difference between a divine friend and just some being that has all power, that sits on the other side of the universe. See, the the resurrection is God come down. The resurrection is, is God declaring his love for you. The resurrection is the greatest moment of grace that we could ever know. See, listen, in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. Do you, you remember that? That they walked with God in the cool of the day? See, they did that because they were friends with God. They, they went for a stroll. You know, Eva and I, whenever we have people over to our house, we like to hang out. But if you've ever been over, you know, one of the things that we like to do, not too long ago, Abigail and Melissa were over, and after we ate, we went for a walk. Because that's, we, we take strolls with our friends. Because just like sitting down to eat, going for a walk is great talking, right? It makes great space for talking. It's a great experience for getting to know people. And so that's what Adam and Eve did with God in the garden. They just went for a walk in the cool of the day. That's what friends do. But listen, when they betrayed Christ by taking of the tree, they died spiritually that day. They betrayed him. They robbed their friendship of all loyalty. They died spiritually that day. And when they, were, uh, when they died spiritually, they were divided in their friendship from God. The friendship was broken. You don't ever again see anyone walking with God in the cool of the day. The next time we see people encountering God in that way, it's really, it's Moses. Right? The friend of God. It's interesting. 
But here's the deal. The resurrection is the solution for the friendship problem. The resurrection is the evidence that life and companionship with God can be restored. To put your faith in the resurrection of Christ is to receive the friendship that he's extending to you. Romans 5, 6 says this. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Who did he die for? The unlikely, the ungodly, right? For scarcely for a, for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 5, 2, it says, and walk in love. See, we can walk with God again. We can walk in his love. We can walk between the thunder and the lightning. It says, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And how do we know that? Because he hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. See, it's Jesus Christ is Jacob's ladder. Jesus Christ bridges the expanse from earth to heaven. He's made a way for you to know the living God, to dwell with him, to walk with him again. But listen, we waste the grace of God in our lives all the time. We waste it. Listen to what he says. He, 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 he throws in a little caveat here. He wants to explain this. And this is what Paul says. He says, and his grace which was bestowed me upon me, it was not in vain. It wasn't in vain. I want to make sure you know that the, the, the grace that Christ stowed upon me it wasn't in vain. Why does he have to clarify that point? Why does he have to clarify, clarify the, the fact that, that he didn't waste the grace of God? It's because we're all prone to waste the grace of God. We are prone to do that. Now the next question is, well, how do we do that? How do we waste grace? We make waste of the grace of God any time. We are more focused on who we are and what we are doing than who he is and what he has done. Let me say that again. We make waste of the grace of God any time we are more focused on who we are and what we are doing than who he is and what he's done for us. That's wasting grace. Listen, listen to how Paul defines that in Galatians 2.21. He says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. In other words, when you start pretending it's your good behavior, your actions, how smart you are, how good you are, and you start looking at yourself and the things that you do in order to qualify whether or not you're a good Christian or a good person, then you have wasted the grace and the gift of the cross. You've wasted it. 
You've made it useless. You've snipped the cord. You've unplugged the power. See, how many of us make grace vain by trying to do good things to make God happy? As though God's up there just like waiting for you to do the next thing that entertains him. The next thing that pleases him. He's just up there waiting. I'm waiting. I mean, I see all the ways in which you've screwed up for me this week. But where's, where's all the goodness? We, we live that way. We think that way. How many of us spoil the gift of God by acting as though we earned salvation? As though, as though we're responsible for keeping the gift that he's given to us. How many of us defraud the resurrection by anxiously doing ministry or behaving in a way intended to impress him or other people? I mean, there are so many people in our ministry who have mingled motivations in what they do. Like when they wake up in the morning and they spend time with the Lord and they've been intimate with him and his word and in that quiet time, they're refreshed, they're emboldened, and they have perspective. They can go out into the world and they can live for him and it's no thing. But there's some of us, there's some of us who fail to see the resurrection from day to day and because that power isn't, isn't, being, isn't coursing through our veins, we go about doing Christian things with absolutely no power in them. And we, we're pretending, we're pretending, we're, we're trying to convince the people around us that we're good, that, w- that we deserve opportunities to do ministry, that we fit in, that we're a part, that, that we're good MBTers, that we're good in Kaya. And we've, we've totally spoiled the beauty of the free gift that you never deserve to begin with. Key point. See, religion obligates us to serve, but the resurrection motivates us to serve. When it's just religion, it's an obligation, it's a duty, isn't it? When it's just, when there's no relationship, there's no friendship involved, when there's no intimacy, it's just religion. And of course you're worn out. Of course you get frustrated with people. Of course you're tired to do one more thing. It's one more thing on my agenda, and I really don't even want to do it. I I wish I just didn't have to do Bible study tonight. I just wish I didn't have to go to prayer tonight. And then you go, and, and you go, and it was good. It was good. It was fine. It was good. I'm glad I did it, I guess. But religion keeps you in this cycle where you feel obligated to God. But if we would simply know him and the power of his resurrection, then that relationship that was bridged by the resurrection would drive us to do anything he asks because he's our friend. He's our friend and he loves us and he's given himself for us. See, this is a critical point. Because when the resurrection is properly applied to our lives, it produces freedom, not bondage. If your Christianity feels like an obligation, that's because you've personally imposed your legalism on it and you've forgotten the joy of following God. 
Are you, are you saved but serving man? Are you saved but serving your own ego? Try serving the Savior that died for you. And see how often you complain about it. When you serve the Savior, it feels right. Feels good, it feels right. Makes you less afraid, it makes you less anxious. Why? Because you're tapped into the power. Paul served and he served well. Look at the the rest of that verse. He says, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Now listen, Paul was not afraid to say that he was the weakest of the apostles. But he also wasn't afraid that he worked harder than all the other apostles. You know what I mean? He's like, I may be the weakest, but I got more calluses on my hands. But I labored more abundantly than they all. What a statement. You know, many of us are trying to make more free time for ourselves. You know, we had, we had our retreat, we talked about stewarding our time, and we've built in a little more me time. It's good. It's good. You need to have time of rest. You need to be balanced in your life. But many of us are trying to make more free time for self, and Paul was looking for more opportunity to serve. Well, how could he do that? How, we're, talk, let's, we're talking about capacity. How could he possibly have the capacity to do all that. I mean, I'm just a low-capacity person. I'm low-capacity. You know, I, 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 don't have, I don't have the ability, I don't have the emotional liberty to do all the stuff, you know? I get tired easily. I got to go to bed at like 4.30 like Kitty Morgan. Right? You, you know, you... You, you go to bed at 4.30 like Kenny Morgan. You wake up at 4.30 like Kenny Morgan. But there's so many of us who, who see ourselves as low capacity, but if we would simply know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection, our capacity would be stretched. We wouldn't be saying, well, I'm out of balance. <laughs> I'm, doing too, I'm doing too much. I'm doing too much. I mean, okay, let, let's just say for a second. I'm going to use Uriah, Uriah as an example. He's a good example. He's right here. Uriah, when you were 20, you had a view of your capacity, what you were able to do, okay? Now, look, you were, a, you were free. You weren't married at that point. At 20, you weren't. No kids, okay? Doing ministry. It was fun. It was a lot of fun back then. A lot of video games, I suppose, back in the, when you were 20. Don't lie right now. Don't lie. Just be honest with us. Now, now, as you've learned to serve the Lord, you've added to your life many, many things, like even like good but worldly things, having a family and, and, and having a job and a career and, and all that stuff, going to school. But have you grown in your capacity since following the Lord the last decade? Do you have the ability to do more for Christ? Have you found more time? Oh, stop. This is why you don't use Uriah for an example for anything. Because he's always going to have like some sort of like snarky, sarcastic. Have you not? Okay, could you? Could you? Oh, all right. All right. Let's put it this way. At twenty, could you have led a fellowship? No. Well, 
None of these are true. These are not trick questions. You couldn't have done it. You couldn't have done it. Your knowledge and understanding weren't there. Your wisdom wasn't there. You've been stretched. You've been stretched in your mind. You've been stretched in your heart. Your ability to shepherd was not there. Right? The focus of your time and energy, they weren't there. You've grown in your capacity. Okay, that was a really long, that turned out to be a really long illustration. But what I've seen in Uriah is that he has been stretched in his capacity. And I see that happening in all those who learn to fellowship with Christ in his resurrection. I see, I see that in all of the saints who learn to know Christ and know him better. And that's what Paul's saying here is that, is that he served more abundantly. But notice that it was grace that made that possible. It was the grace of God that made that possible. When the resurrection is your motivation, then grace fills your life. Now you begin to lean on it. Then you begin to test its strength. You learn it and you study it. You fill your life with the implications of its truth. You begin to let grace lead you to places you never thought you could go. Service to God becomes a joy and ministry becomes an addiction, which we're going to learn about in 1 Corinthians 16 in the house of Stephanus. They addicted themselves to the ministry. Listen, when I first started following Christ, okay, you know, I was saved, but I started attending the church that I attended because there was good Bible teaching there. And I was just excited about hearing good Bible teaching. Amen, Eric? Right? Those, those early years being a teenager at KCBT was awesome. And we learned the truth of God's word. And, and it was, that was enough for me. I was excited by that. I had no idea of the depths of that pursuit. I had no idea that just showing up to church would one day result in me becoming a pastor. I just wanted to learn the Bible. I just wanted to get discipled. And then I wanted to discover ministry. I wanted to put my toes in the ministry waters. And it wasn't long before it swept me away into a life that I would have never expected for myself. I would have never planned this for myself. Listen, we may not be the smartest or most adept, but the resurrection produces amazing things in us. Things we would never have been able to consider before knowing him. And listen, there are, there are people in this room right now where like all of this is new to you. Or, or maybe you've been out of church for a while. Or maybe the, the concept of discipleship is new to you. Or like the idea that, that every member of the church should be a minister. That everyone has a responsibility in the family of God. Maybe all of these ideas might be new to you. But I want to warn you right now that if you choose to follow Jesus Christ and you make the resurrection of Christ a reality in your life, you have no idea where that's going to take you. And that's the most exciting proposition that you will ever face. Here's the key point. The resurrection empowers us beyond what we are capable of. 2 Chronicles 15, 7 says, Be ye strong, therefore, 
And let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. So when Paul says grace made him a laborer, he meant it. He became a workhorse for Christ. And that, and that listen, there's so many of us, you know, when we talk about the cost of discipleship and following Jesus, we all recognize that there's a cost because there's things that we have to give up, right? Cost of discipleship, well, cost is something. That means that I gotta fork something over. I need to turn something over. A sacrifice has to be made, right? There are certain things that I need to repent of in order to move forward in fellowship with God. We all get that, but listen to me. When you fill your life with the reality of the resurrection, any loss only ever seems reasonable. Any sacrifice, according to Romans chapter 12, is only just reasonable. And it doesn't feel like loss. Because you, you got more than you gave. In that proposition of knowing Jesus Christ and being his disciple, you gained more than you could ever give up. So don't be afraid. Lay it all down. It's worth it. So what does this look like in ministry when this happens? Well, Paul models that for us. Verse 11. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. Here's the key point. The resurrection compels us to speak. It compels us to speak up. I mean, what... What does it mean to believe that the message you hold is the message the entire world needs? <laughs> right? I mean, at the point that you understand the reality of your faith and the implications for humanity, the implications for your family, your classmates, your coworkers, and people that you've never met yet, the people walking on the streets this morning, what do you do about that? I mean, when your eyes have been opened to the truth, what do you do about that? How does that affect the way you live? See, how could anyone who believes that they have the answer for eternal life ever remain silent? And yet we do. Why? Why? Why, why do I stay silent when I know that I need to talk to my coworkers about Christ? Oh, I'm just an introvert. It's the worst excuse ever for letting people die and go to hell. I guess it's just a closed door. I mean, just walking by someone's cubicle is not really you fishing for an open door. Like just walking by and be like, oh, I guess that was a closed door. I mean, we make so many excuses, right? <laughs> oh, they didn't make eye contact with me. I guess I'm not supposed to talk to them today. We make so many excuses for not obeying God. It's, it's incredible. And, and when we live that way, we not only deny the resurrection power in our life but we deny the resurrection power in other people's lives and that's not just a sin against your own soul it's a, it's a sin against all souls everywhere How can anyone who believes they have the answer to eternal life 
Remain quiet. Colossians 1.28, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ, whereunto I also labor. There's that word labor. What kind of labor should we be doing? Striving according to his work, which worketh in me mightily. Preaching and warning every man, teaching them in all wisdom, right? 1 Corinthians 1.18, if you remember this, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It's foolishness to them. People will mock you. They will, make, they will say that you're stupid. I mean, what they believe is stupider. But you're the stupid one. They have no hope in their life, but you're the stupid one. You're foolish, okay? You're foolish. That's okay. Because unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So it's foolishness to the world. But for some, it will be the power of God to bring them to a place of true wisdom. So, look, uh, so you're an unlikely candidate. I'm an unlikely candidate. We have a low capacity. Uh, we've filled our life with really vain activity, like, like really empty things. Right? I mean, haven't we? I mean, and, and, and like me, you know that your faith is often lukewarm. And, it, and, it's, and it's so interesting that sometimes... Sometimes we hate ourselves so much that it incapacitates us. But sometimes we love ourselves so much that it incapacitates us. And sometimes those things are just like the same thing. <laughs> and, 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 and we say, I can't. I don't know how. God, I know what you're asking of me. I just don't know how. I, I can't get there. I look around at my, at my counterparts, my peers, and I, and I see them, th what appears to be thriving, and I can't imagine myself getting there. God, I, I, God, I, I lack vision. I, I don't know what the next steps of my life are. I don't know who I'm supposed to be. I, I, I feel like every time I turn around, the addictions and the problems that I struggle with the place that I put my eyes, the place that I put my body, the place I put my thoughts, they're all incongruent with who you've made me to be and I get lost, I feel lost, I feel in a dark place, I feel in a fog. I feel like I have no identity whatsoever. So you're unqualified. But the good news is that God doesn't need your resume to employ you for the greatest adventure that you'll ever go on. There's a lot of pressure fishing out those resumes, finding that first job. You know, you feel like you gotta sweeten things up a little bit. 
right? Make, it, make yourself sound kind of appealing. Well, Christ isn't taking your resume. He's taking you as you are. And all he asks in return is that you love him at the terms of the resurrection. How are you frustrating the grace of God this morning? Are you on the verge of running away? There are usually some people in the room who are on the verge of running away from everything that God's done in their life. Are you on the verge of running away? Cutting your ties? Are you despising God's work in you? Are you stealing away control from God? Control that doesn't belong to you? See, here's the deal. You were made. You were made for Jesus. You were made to walk with him in the cool of the day. You were made to serve him and worship him with everything you have. And his resurrection was and is his appeal to you to stop wandering. To stop your wandering. Because home, home is wherever he is. And peace is where he is. And joy is where he is. And hope, hope is where he is. And the resurrection is all the proof you need. And so if, if you could, if you recognize that you are struggling in one of these areas, remember Christ's resurrection, and come forward today, cast your care upon him, lay it, lay it all down. That's what we're going to sing. We're going to sing lay it all down. Whatever is keeping you from the power of Christ, lay it down today. Because he's got great things for you. And he wants you to know the power of his resurrection. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for making a way for us, Lord. I pray that today we would worship you in spirit and truth. And Lord, that we would be filled with awe and wonder for who you are. That we would know it in our mind and in the way that we feel. That you are a good God to us. That you love us and you are our friend. Friendship is a thing that that you know in your mind and you know it in your heart because you feel it. You feel friendship. And so God, today, help us to know your friendship. Help us to lean into it. And help it to inspire. And help, us, help it to motivate us to do mighty and wonderful and great things in the power of your spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.